Hi, I'm Luke. And I'm Brennan. We, we are, are the Farm, Farm Finders. Finders. When we first got married, we dreamed of owning land and building a self-sufficient lifestyle. But we soon saw that buying land was almost out of reach. Land was expensive and hard to finance. But we couldn't just give up on our dream of being landowners. To be honest, it was a pretty discouraging problem. But we were determined to find a solution. So we started a company called The Farm Finders to find properties that anyone could afford. That was a few years back. And today, we're proud to say we've helped hundreds of people make their landowning dreams a reality. There's something inside each of us that wants a piece of land to call our own. Here at The Farm Finders, we can make that happen. If you're like us and dream of owning land, then check out our website at thefarmfinders.com to find that perfect property. Take advantage of our no credit check, zero interest owner financing with payments as low as $50 a month with our secure online checkout. It's easy to make any property yours with just a few clicks. So don't just dream, do something. Visit thefarmfinders.com today. Let's Let's make make you a landowner. Now you can hear us around the world, streaming 24-7 at safetyfm.com. Streaming live from Taos, New Mexico. Here is Dr. J. Allen. On Safety FM. Broadcasting live from the Safety FM studios in Orlando, Florida, here is your host, Dr. Jay Allen, on Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast is brought to you by Safety Focus Moments. They're consultants that want to help you get the safety culture you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I have been amazed by the response to part one of this mini series. So, as we begin the second week, it looks like some of you guys enjoyed that, so that's important. Unfortunately, we did have a bad event occur last week where we had to cancel or postpone, better saying, our road show that was going to be taking place in Houston. So we will be making up that date. We'll have that actually up on the website on when the new dates will be out and about. So I do apologize about that. Of course, as always, you can listen to Safety FM on your favorite podcatcher, or you can go to safetyfm.com or safetyfm.live. Of course, the different apps that we are have available to you. That, of course, the Alexa skill, the iOS app, and, of course, available on the Google Play Store. So I'm not going to go too far on this today. We're going to continue on where we left off last week. And let's just pick it up right away and get you started into part two of this little mini-series. Hopefully you enjoy it here today on Safety FM. It begins in Orlando, Florida and travels steadily to the West, beaming across North America and planet Earth and into your head. The world of safety never stops. And now, the Safety FM podcast and broadcast with Dr. Jay Allen. Todd Conklin. Well, the funny part is that as I listened to the book and really have read the book, it's interesting because it almost seems like it is groundwork that was built for the purpose of that. So hearing you say that there wasn't, it's it's amazing to hear because I, I it all seems strategic. It's all just serendipity. I mean, but I, but I think that's how change happens, right? It happens on kind of that arc. There's sort of an arc of change uh, or there's a maturity model or maturity. Some, some, you know, it kind of moves. And I think, I think Coca-Cola made me think, because Coca-Cola probably thought about it first. And said, you know, what you talk about with our people is really more of a holistic approach. You ought to write a book about it. 
And then I wrote a book about it, which made me think more about a holistic approach. And it made me think more about really the difference between free agency, the belief that workers um, have free agencies, that workers are, are in command and control of their own actions, and and the belief that workers are actually part of a larger uh, cultural environment. And if we want to change the worker, we don't ask the worker to be different. We change the cultural environment. So we do these disruptive acts. We take them to a movie or we serve ice cream at a boring meeting or, you know, we buy somebody lunch. Those kind of little disruptive actions that really now that I'm older, I don't know if I'm wiser, but I'm older. I see those now as really important to setting the stage for the change. Well, I think that there are huge factors in there. So let's look a year ahead now down the road. And you don't have a book, quote unquote, per se, that comes out at the time. But July of 2005, I have access to the first lesson plan of Human Performance Fundamental Course. What's the feeling there? What are you looking at as you're going down that particular path? I know it's not a part of your book collection, but still, it's, it's an important document to your career. I find that. <laughs> That's funny. Does it still is it are is it still the same slides? That's the big question. Uh, oh yes, they are. <laughs> Believe me, I've, I've done my research for this bad boy. <laughs> that would be the same, maybe. So so okay, July two thousand and five. That's when we started working with Impo, and uh, and that's when Shane and I would have initially probably started hanging out. Shane Bush. Well, let me ask you a question right there, if you don't if if you don't mind. So. As as you're going down the path and this is being developed and everything is going forward, are you seeing the opportunity on what this is going to become later down the road? Or are you just going Department of Energy, you know, organization to organization within the DOE, quote unquote, and just thinking this is only going to be a nuclear power plant thing before you get end up getting the, we'll say, the Merry Christmas gift from Earl Carnes? Yeah. You know, that's a really good question because honestly, uh, and I'm not sure how it got pigeonholed this way, but uh, qu- quite a few people had the um, impression that human performance was about people in nuclear power plants turning valves, flipping switches, and and we don't have a nuclear reactor chain. And by the way, we don't even have these big uh, operations like Chevron. And but they they totally misunderstood the message. And so the message is, if you have humans working in your process, I guarantee you, you can use this philosophy because everybody makes errors and mistakes. And when we started communicating that, uh, I, I give them my examples. I used to be a human resource manager in which one of my employees sent an offer to the wrong candidate. Now, that's nothing to do with safety, but I'm telling you, that's a pretty bad day when you got to call someone and retract an offer. Um, so I started using, a, and, and there's two terms we quite often use, physical plant touchers and paper plant touchers, and they're exactly what they're inferring. Physical plant touchers are the people out in the field that push the buttons and flip the switches. But the paper plant touchers um, have a lot more of an influence on the overall output because of the procedures and guidelines and how they engineer it and the, the scheduling they put out. If they don't understand the limitations of human nature uh, and don't study that and integrate it into the process, then I don't care how good you are, you're going to make errors and mistakes in the field. So, yeah, it started off as just running around to the DOE facilities and then all of a sudden we kind of rephrased it or, or actually – uh, put it in a format that anybody could. I went to Schwann Foods with this thing, uh, and as I mentioned, Disney and uh, Bell Helicopter, and every one of them could see a fit for not only 
the people that are turning the wrench, but for the people that are actually designing or writing procedures, and then the world exploded. Um, quite often people will ask, how did we end up in Italy or Germany or Sweden? Or, And I honestly don't know, because up until about a year and a half ago, we didn't even have a homepage. We've been running purely off of word of mouth. Um, now, we know, of course, who called us to come over, but we don't know who gave them the word that gave the other person the word that so it's it's been such a treat to watch this thing flourish not only within DOE uh, but in numerous industries. Todd and I both spend a lot of time in electrical distribution uh, companies and uh, big big giants like your BP oils and Chevrons, but we also spend time with little companies that uh, are wanting to reduce it. So it did start off pretty pigeonholed, but I, I I'm pretty sure. In fact. I'd have to say that if you were to ask most people that's been through my course or Todd's course, uh, they would no doubt see that that this has become a business initiative, and that's how we sell it. it if I get a chance before senior management um, for about an hour or so, they easily see how this isn't applicable to just safety or quality, or it's applicable to all of it, so it becomes a business initiative. Lamar Palmer. So 2005, are you doing then compiling of documents at the time or what exactly are you doing as you start getting involved? I uh, I was teaching and we were using EMPO materials at that time. I, I think it was 2005. Uh, Shane Bush, uh, he was doing it uh, on a national scale uh, about six months before I got involved. So if you remember what he told you when he got started i'm a, i'm a, about six months behind okay whatever that was i've kind of lost track well the interesting part is that i can i've been able to speak to some different people and i've had the conversation with earl carnes i've spoke to todd conklin shane bush tony mashera um rob fisher so i've kind of went through the different people and everybody has i guess I'm not going to say their own versionality of the story, but they all have a story on how, on how they they got to where they're at. But one thing is consistent. Um, the one portion that's in, that's consistent all the time is how you're the young sung hero and how you compiled all these documents and put some fluidity into them. Well, uh, Earl Carnes was the was the pain director. He he was in charge of the human performance improvement. Uh, initiative at DOE and he had the money he hired MAS consultants uh, who I worked for to do the work I probably spent two years uh, writing those two documents and getting them approved uh, the writing took probably a year uh, or so and then we had to have peer reviews done and they went around to human factors organizations around the country that's in DOE and uh, various, all oh, there were lots and lots of people that, that uh, reviewed the writing. Some of them were very favorable and some of them were uh, not very favorable, but, but uh, we, we were able to survive it. I, I would have to say that Earl, Earl Gardens, uh, uh, you know, at the DOE level, uh, stayed the course uh he could have just said oh this is too hard we just won't do it but he stayed the course and uh and perceived uh persisted and i think uh, you know the documents were finally finalized through the doe system in 2009 i think i started them in, in uh, 2007 
Now, let me just ask that question there. As you're building the structure and putting some of these things into place, are you noticing or realizing at the time how important these documents are going to become later down the road? Is there kind of something behind it or is it just normal standard work on the way that you're looking at it? Well, I I perceived that it would be uh, an important uh, uh, piece because uh, we were using we were using uh, the commercial nuclear industry's materials, uh, Shane and and uh, Todd, and of course it, it didn't go over too well, you know, because uh, DOE likes to think that their work is unique. And uh, they don't like working off of other people's documents. And, and uh, frankly, ENPO, ENPO had a uh, long-term financial agreement with DOE that they would share their materials, not just uh, not just human performance improvement uh, documents, but uh, all kinds of documents that they generated uh, through the ENPO system. And they were doing that regularly, uh, particularly among and between the training organizations. Anyway, uh, myself and others who were involved in the training at these various sites and facilities recognized that we needed to have our own materials so that it would be more grounded with our people. We needed to have examples and uh, situations that were specific to our our facilities and our the kind of work that our people did. And uh, so, I have to say that we we used a lot of uh, information from NPO. Uh, we tried to uh, individualize it to the to the DOE need. Uh, as it relates to uh, national laboratory work and uh, cleanup work. Todd Conklin. And we started looking at the INPO program, which was really, um, really quite extensive. Tony Mashara had done a ton, a ton of work and was quite extensive. And we started to apply it. Um, with the rigor of a nuke facility to kind of a non-nuke facility, even though that's, I mean, it's kind of not, not, and non, there's a lot of negatives there, but <laughs> we started, we started applying it in a, in a, in a much more, uh, well, not sort of non-utility application. And, and it's funny because those initial slides, it'd be interesting to look at those because at that time we would have been really fixated on error, on human error. Mm-hmm. And probably most of the conversation would have been around identifying error-likely situations and putting tools in the system to reduce human error, which we now know is kind of was a little bit of a fool's errand. But I think that was really important developmentally to starting the way we thought about human performance because you really have to kind of start with understanding error, which then leads you to blame. And then once you really dig into blame and you start looking at the fundamental attribution bias and and the things that sort of exist around blame, then that takes you back to error kind of for a second visit. But it'd be interesting to see those slides. What do you think about those slides? Well, I thought they were pretty interesting, especially number one, the way that I was able to get a hold of them. And number two, if you look at those original slides, 
I mean, there's been some changes throughout the years for sure. But when you first see it, it references you and Shane and it doesn't speak about the other people that are on there. And I thought that that was interesting and not, not you know, just serving up to you and Shane per se, but looking at the different aspects on how it was built out and then yeah. the amount of people that are there. And the, the lesson plans have been the thing that's gotten me pretty excited on some of just the, the foundational pieces on how they were supposed to be taught out, the length of the lessons and so on. So it's just yeah, really we were pretty good. Mm -hmm. We were pretty good at, at uh, putting all that stuff out in the public. So I would imagine those lesson plans, those, uh, the initial student guide. Did you get a copy of that? I'll have to double check for the student guide because I didn't go digging for that because I, I thought the handbook was it. The student guide we put together at Los Alamos, which would have been pre-handbook, okay. um, it was really good. It was really, really, really good. And I had that written. Um, I had a team of grad students for a summer. And, and so I ran them through all the, the HP stuff we had and made them sit through a bunch of classes. And then I said, you know, what we want is a student guide. And the student guide, we, we decided we didn't want to give copies of the slides out just because that's kind of, I don't know. Back in the day, that would be one more three-ring binder full of slides that you would never touch again. Right. So we spiral-bound a student guide that supported the class, but it was really interesting in that it never had not even one copy of a slide in it. But every slide we showed was supported then by narrative, by actually research-based, cited academic narrative to support all those slides, which is something you need at a place like Los Alamos or Livermore or Berkeley or Savannah River, the places where we would go and train. Because our audiences were all, you know, for the most part, PhD research scientists, and and they don't really, uh, they, they kind of know when you're making crap up. So you need to be able to cite stuff academically. And that, that was really fun. That that student guide, if you don't have a copy of it, I bet you I have one. I saved some. Okay. They, they were really nice. They were really well done. I would love to get a copy if you do have a copy. Yeah, of I, it. I bet I do. Now, the, uh, the other thing that I notice here is you have this DOE document, but all of a sudden in your book writing career, you don't have anything come out for another seven years per se. Now, yeah, are there were, yeah. are there revisions going on during the seven year period to the DOE stuff? No, not so much. So pre the DOE document was the Impo document. And you should see a lot of similarities between the Impo handbooks, if you have access to those. But the, but the Impo handbooks and the DOE handbooks are, 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 they're definitely cousins of one another. The other thing that happened between the Impo handbook and the DOE handbook was that Decker's first book, the black and red um, probably a hundred pager, wouldn't very, maybe a hundred and ten page long book, uh, Field Guide to Human Error, the field, the field Guide to Understanding Human Error, I think is the name, His, which would be the, the first version of that. That book came out and that book rocked the world. Earl Carnes. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. I, I, it's so impressive on how this worked out. So you start off then and you're in the Department of Energy. Do you, what, do right, you walk right. in as the senior advisor? Right, right out of, right. No. Well, no, no, no. I well, okay. sort of. I was. I, I think they called me technical okay. advisor. Okay, because it was another one of these things. Okay, uh, you know, university's been good to me. I walk in, and the the director with whom I had interviewed, he was not a nuclear guy. He was an anthropologist. <laughs> this gets more more and more interesting as we go. <laughs> <laughs> but he had worked for the 
National Academy of Sciences with on, on nuclear related projects uh, that at some of Admiral Rico's Rickover's key people had worked on and they were impressed with his way of thinking so when they started uh, staffing up one thing I think is that I, I know from certain things that it was difficult to get people to, who had you know I'd say outstanding technical credentials to come into that job because they were already you know better employed in other places and you know Empo was going great guns and also those huge competitiveness okay but so anyway, they hired Steve as to be the director. Okay, well, you know, they, they, they asked me to come in, you know, as the, the head of uh, emergency management oversight for the department at the time. But very quickly, for whatever reasons, maybe my background, the fact that he'd been trained as an anthropologist, um, you know, we had some similar worldviews. And so he... Quickly, you know, uh, while I did that job, I became a technical advisor to him doing other things like, oh, well, we got this organization here, got a lot of people from the NRC and all this other kind of place. We need to develop some operating procedures. So, Earl, get all these people together. Let's start developing some internal operating procedures, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, it was it was interesting. Uh, but that, here's the point that, that I want to make here is it's, it's transition time. Um, and so... The Cold War was over. The, the international defense posture had changed. Uh, a huge amount, you know, of the uh, national budget had been spent on nuclear defense, you know, from the fifties on up. Uh, and that was, and Chernobyl had happened. Okay, and people were concerned about some of the reactors, uh, not power reactors, but reactors to generate nuclear material that supported the, the weapons program as well as supported uh, 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 health uh, health research and stuff like that. But anyway, they were very, very old, you know, back to the 50s. Uh, and so there were concerns about that. So that's what was driving and did drive the change in DOE from being a very insular, very insular organization. You can appreciate that. And, and it was insular in that typically nobody from the outside got into these organizations you know you started there when you were young you know you were recruited through the laboratories or you were recruited through universities or things, something like that very early on and that's where you stayed and so you know we're talking about Powell's early los alamos national lab you know you know the story about that it's where you get some of those brilliant knowledgeable scientists out in the world in the middle of the desert you know and they're there insulated so that's what happened in these places, you know, Savannah River, Oak Ridge, uh, Hanford, Washington State, and so forth. They assembled a huge mass of, of intellect of all different kinds of disciplines and said, here, go do this stuff nobody's ever done before. And then you had to have the technicians and, you know, the people running the organizations and people doing the administrative work and, and the technician work would be, you know, building or electrical or whatever. And you drew those people and they actually built these communities. And so you lived there and your kids were born and they went to work there because it was good paying. It was, you know, it was a, a very patriotic thing to do. It was public service. Uh, and so you had this communal structure within the science technology structure and some, and, and quasi military. And so, forth. so it was, and that's just, that's just on the defense side. 
Shane Bush. Well, see, the fun part the fun part is that I've actually been taking a look at some of the older material that's out there, and I've been yeah. able to actually get a hold of the actual original trainer documents. Uh, so imagine really? how. Oh yes, <laughs> a lot of pull there, but was able to get was able to get it. And your name and Todd's name are out there. And I was kind of surprised. And of course, the, the way that I received it, I was told that that you, you guys were both the face of the training. And it's just interesting looking at what it was back then to what it is now. And oh, isn't that interesting? Well, it is interesting because I mean, some of the wording changes, but the concepts are yeah. pretty much the same. And I know that everybody kind of puts their own spin, as you were referencing, on there. Now, yeah. do you still feel that it's going down the same original trajectory that it started off on? Or do you think that it's taking some some twists and turns as we've been, as we've been down this road? You know, that's, a, again, a really good question. So here's my take on that. And, I, and I've been saying this for a while, but to me, the best years of human performance are always five years out. And the reason I say that is because we are learning so much. Um, in the early days, I, I honestly didn't even know what I was saying in explaining the performance modes because I've learned so much about performance modes, which is basically the mindset or the mental model people use. Uh, Todd and I quite often look at each other and like, what did we even say back then? Because we learned so much. So has it changed? No. Has it improved? Absolutely. Has it actually taken on a life of its own as far as uh, taking it from reducing errors to actually increasing significant production by learning how to fail safely. And it's the, the new way of looking at human error because originally it was all about eliminating human error. Eliminate it or at least eliminate the consequences of it. Now what we're doing is we still don't, we always got to stick to the, the fundamentals. And that's the thing I always judge people's presentations against. Are you sticking to the fundamentals but telling us how we can improve that? And if, if if they're sticking to the fundamentals, then I'm real interested. But if they've taken it in a whole new direction and got different terms and different, um, then I'm concerned. Because as you know, with anything, once it starts morphing, then it just doesn't look the same. But the people that are doing the best with this, the Conklins of the world, Michelle and all them, are the ones that are now taking human performance from not just reducing unwanted outcomes related to human error, but they're increasing human ingenuity. Now, that is a really l large leap. So now what we're seeing is companies not only eliminating, but they're actually providing safeguards. We call them rumble strips, a term Todd coined on the interstates. We give them rumble strips and then it's amazing the fixes the employees can come up with. Uh, so we let them fail safely. And then those companies that actually look at it from that perspective, rather than zero accidents, zero incidents, are actually having better success than those focusing just on the outcome. So as you look at this then, and people are doing their new spin, as you, as you put there, but you want to make sure that they're staying to the fundamentals. What do you think about all these different wordings as some people call it HP, some people call it HPI, some people call it human and organizational performance, some people call it safety differently. Do you think name matters or what do you, what, what is your belief? I mean, you're one of the originators. So I think that you have a lot more pull when you, you say, well, this is what it should be. And this is how we go forward. And I know that HPI is tied into some of the titling on what you use. So I kind of know where you're going to maybe go, but we'll see how this ends up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it uh, again, uh, an HPI, human performance improvement, is actually what DOE, Ty and Earl, decided to call it. Because if you go back to the source, so we're guilty, by the way, as well, because it originally was called HU. And the U was small because in the 
commercial nuclear power plant world, HPR already was an overused acronym for health physics. And U was supposed to be just the first two words of human. And it was like people were so confused on what's HU. And the U became capitalized after a while, which means there should be an acronym there and there wasn't. So we, we decidedly uh, together says we need to follow the principles of HPI, which is be clear about what this is. So we called it HPI. So that's a DOE coined phrase. And then, of course, you got HOP, human and organizational performance. You got uh, safety differently. Honestly, those it's it's like any other message out there. If you can get people's interest by taking them to the next level with safety differently, in other words, failing safely versus don't fail at all, and you stick to the fundamental philosophy, I'm fine with that. That is a natural maturity path to follow. Now, if you call it something different and start using different terms, because I don't like the air precursors or I don't like this just culture stuff, so we're going to call it, you know, everybody's happy. I, I then have concerns. And here's why. Because a lot of people, when they say human performance improvement, can we change the name? Because people think you're trying to improve them. And my mindset has always been this. I would rather explain to them one time what HPI stands for and what the philosophy is, rather than every single time I teach a class, try to justify why we changed the name. Because if they truly understand the philosophy, they don't care what you call it. And and by changing the title, now you got exactly what you just said to me. Well, is it HOP or is it HU? Is it H- what is it? So this is personal choice. I am no judge of anybody else, but my judgment is I'll always call it HPI for the rest of my career um, because there's so much material out there that talks about human performance. But again, I am not dogging anyone. If they feel like the change is uh, significant in improving, have at it. But again, I'm, I'm of the mindset, explain once, and then you can read anything you want about it rather than explain it each and every time as to why you changed the name. Well, do you feel that some people have actually done the name change for the purposes of them being able to trademark it or copyright it? Uh, and I'm asking, that, an opi- and it's yeah. an opinion question, not a, we're, sure. not, we're not trying to, to throw crap at anyone. I'm just asking a general question. No, I get it. I really do. And and by the way, I I, I think, you know, if, if they come up with a product that is a little better way to approach part of the process or all of the process and, and they put a lot of time and effort in it, should they be rewarded? Absolutely, they should be rewarded. As far as taking on the name and creating a particular approach to this that might be different than mine or Todd's or Tony's, absolutely. I, I, I believe in in free trade and I believe in, in the fact that um, if you go out there and, and work really hard and produce a product that you believe, and by the way, the telltale signs are whether they invite you back. So if you're selling a product and they're inviting you back and you happen to change the name so you can make a little better living at it, I I mean, more power to you. I, I have been so lucky because Todd and I and others, we've been compensated well. And so... Um, as far as creating a product, what we have found is by giving our stuff away, people quite often ask me, Shane, why do you give it all away? The fact that you were able to go out there and search on the internet and get everything that I've ever put out. Um, well, what I found is by me giving it away, I actually increase customers significantly um, because people talk and they talk and other people talk. And so this swimming pool, a lot of people think of uh, human performance like uh, a, a limited amount of work out there. Well, that's ridiculous because in the United States, if I had to guess, I would guess that less than 5% of the company population of the United States has ever even heard of this. I mean, there is so much opportunity out there that by sharing materials with them, 
Uh, and, and again, without any homepage or anything, I've stayed booked eight to nine months out for 15 years. Well, the interesting so, part with your stuff is I have to tell you, yours is one of the only classes that I've been to that right at the very beginning of the class, you're going, okay, here's the Department of Energy's handbook, volume one, volume two. And yeah. the majority of other classes that I have attended, they do not reference that immediately. And, and you don't, and you don't waste any time. It's boom. It's good to go. Yeah. And, and again, the reason I do that is because I don't want them, well, two things. I want them to hopefully see that as being credible, but you know, we spent a lot of time and effort in putting this together. So, um, and, and then the other thing is so that they would know, I don't have to write down every single thing Shane does and try to keep up with this and, and that they can go back and at the appropriate time and place, they can read it at their leisure and everything hopefully that I said in those three days is reinforced. Tune in next week as we continue the story of human and organizational performance, how it started here on Safety FM. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. SafetyFM.com.